Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 358. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. This week's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there... Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and I want to start off by acknowledging that this episode is coming out the week of United States Thanksgiving, which is a holiday that has always been very family-oriented for me but it's also based on a totally whitewashed version of history that denies and ignores the genocide and the stolen land and the broken treaties of colonization and the harm that that has caused to the native indigenous peoples of North America and South America in the past and present. So I'm recording this from Anne Arundel County, Maryland, which is the tribal lands of the Piscataway Kanoi tribe and the Susquehannock tribe. I believe where I am is more Piscataway Kanoi land, from my understanding. And I'm wanting to invite you to think about the Land Back Movement, which is a movement, and I'm quoting from landback.org. Right now, when I read you this, the Land Back Movement is a movement that has existed for generations with a long legacy of organizing and sacrifice to get indigenous lands back into indigenous hands. The closure of Mount Rushmore, return of that land and all public lands in the Black Hills, South Dakota, is the cornerstone battle of this organization, and they're building out their campaign from that first major goal. And again, quoting from the website, not only does Mount Rushmore sit in the heart of the sacred Black Hills, but it is an international symbol of white supremacy and colonization. To truly dismantle white supremacy and systems of oppression, we have to go back to the roots. And the Land Back Movement says that that is, for them, putting indigenous lands back in indigenous hands. So you can learn more about this at landback.org and make a donation at landback.org slash donate. I learned this information from another website, Supporting Native Peoples, which is, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it's Sikangju CDC, Community Development Corporation, and that I will also link to in the show notes. You can donate to their organization, and there's a full guide on land back movement land acknowledgement at the Native Governance Center website, and that's nativegov.org. I'll link to all of those in the show notes. Another organization to look into and possibly support if you 
are interested is the Native American Rights Foundation, narf.org. And you can also make a donation to them. I put a link in the show notes. And why am I sharing this as just a tiny and certainly not the only way that I can acknowledge and attempt to, what's the word, compensate for some of the harm that have has been done in the name of colonization, which I've benefited from as a white woman. Okay, so another thing I want to talk about in relation to this week's episode is about speaking out, speaking up, fear of speaking up. And if you follow me on social media, you might have seen this. I'm still working on speaking about it in all the different ways that I show up in email and here. But I want to amplify Akila Riley Richardson's work. She was, she created a course and it was being delivered through Academy of Therapy Wisdom with another teacher. There was a conflict that arose during the training where a repair did not happen. And the way that the whole thing played out, Akila Raleigh Richardson ended up being, I would say, marginalized in that experience in multiple ways. I wasn't there, but I believe her telling of what happened. And as a result, I had interviewed that teacher, someone whose work I had greatly admired, and I still admire the work greatly. But the way the situation was handled, I couldn't stand with. So I'm standing with Akila Riley Richardson, and I want to amplify her course, which is being reissued. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to share more information about this. I don't feel that I'm able to speak about it with a lot of knowledge, but I feel that it's important for me to say something about why I took down that interview, which is episode 333, because I feel it's really important as leaders, and I have to count myself in that as well. I feel it's important for leaders to stand behind what we say we believe and what our values are. And I know that we all screw up, and that's not the problem because we're all human. Screwing up is not the problem. The problem is how do you handle it when you screw up? And can you recognize the power you have, especially if you're a white person, when the interaction is with someone who is not white? If you're at the top of the proverbial food chain and you're not seeing how your actions are can be very harmful to someone with less power than you, you're causing harm in those instances. I'm sure that there are many instances of me causing harm that I was unaware of or didn't know how to deal with when they happened. But I'm here to say that it might not look smooth. You might not feel great. You might be afraid. But the more people can stand up for what's right and what you believe, what your values are, what you say they are, and how you live them and where you fall short, trying to do better, always trying to do better, that's what's needed. And when we are out of alignment with our own values, we do harm consciously and unconsciously. So it's really simple, even if it feels like so shameful to say I know I did something that hurt someone. It's not shameful to admit you did something wrong, but hiding and deflecting blame and refusing to accept accountability out of shame is that's not leadership. So when Akila Riley Richardson's course is released and I have more information, I hope to be promoting it as I was the previous course that she was part of that was taken down against her wishes based on what she has shared publicly. So I guess, you know, this is a cliche at this point, but this even applies to when you're with your family and people are saying things that are hateful, ignorant, racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic. Do you say anything about it or do you not? Do you just keep quiet? Do you keep the peace? It doesn't have to be an angry confrontation of telling the person that they're a horrible person, but you can say, I don't agree with that. I won't stay in this space. If you continue to talk about that, you can kindly challenge the person to think about another perspective. And of course, 
if you are a member of the group that's being the target of the hate speech at the time, it's not your responsibility to speak up. Just do what you have to do to feel safe. But for anyone with more power, don't be a bystander. We have this culture of don't get involved. Don't rock the boat. Don't stir the pot. Don't open up a can of worms. Why do we have so many different expressions related to sweeping things under the rug, ignoring the elephant in the room? Why do we have so many phrases that capture that? It's such a cultural norm in the European socialization. And it's not, I should say, the Western European socialization. And it's not, it's not the only way to do things. And it only serves the oppressor. So something to think about. Asking myself more and more and more, who am I aligning with and why? Am I aligning with whoever has more power out of fear that I won't be safe if I don't? Or am I stepping into my own power and speaking up for someone who has less power, even if I'm afraid? I think if your behavior isn't aligned with your values, causes a lot of turmoil, inner turmoil, and harm in your relationships and harm to others. So getting right with your own values is the way out of that. And when you don't know what to do, as my therapist always reminds me, check in with your own heart. What do your values tell you? Okay, the last thing I want to say before we dive into this week's episode is just to remind you that if you're a trauma therapist, you can join Trauma Therapist Network before the end of the year. And if you sign up through the waiting list, you can save 20%. There's also going to be a regular registration link open soon that you can also save 15%. So for either 20% or 15% off of your first month of Trauma Therapist Network membership, go to traumatherapistnetwork.com. And if you click on for therapists, you'll find the, the registration information there. All right. I hope you are resisting consumerism this as we go into this holiday season and remembering who that serves and what really matters to you. And next week, well, I didn't even tell you what this week's episode is. So let me tell you about that real quick. We are going to be revisiting my conversation with Dr. Loretta Piles from 2018. She's a critical social justice scholar concerned with transformative social change and integrative body-mind-spirit practice. And her scholarship has centered on the ways that individuals, organizations, and communities resist and respond to poverty, violence against women, racism, and disasters in a context of climate crisis, neoliberal global capitalism, and social welfare retrenchment. And she's the author of her most recent book, Healing Justice, Holistic Self-Care for Changemakers. And we talked about the process of becoming a clinician and how the social work education process is not so social justice focused in how students are treated. In fact, if you haven't heard and you're a social worker, there's a lot of talk about abolishing the ASWB exam because the questions may be inherently Eurocentric. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that, well, standardized testing in general is problematic. But if you've heard anything about what's going on with the ASWB stuff, there's a lot of movement towards abolishing this exam. And I thought the whole thing was a complete joke, personally. What was reflected in how I practiced and how what I learned in school was not what was on that exam. And so I think, if nothing else, they need to answer for why the pass-fail rates are so much drastically worse for people of color than white people. And I signed the petition to abolish the exam. I hope they do. So... I'll put a link in the show notes about that too, so you can see what's going on with that. Okay, so without further ado, let's get into my conversation from 2018 with Loretta Piles. Today, I am very honored to have a guest from UAlbany. Dr. Loretta Piles is a professor at the School of Social Welfare, a longtime meditator and yoga teacher and a fellow social worker who has a book coming out in March 2018 called Healing Justice. Dr. Piles, thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. 
Oh, thank you. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited to talk to you. I I heard about your book, oddly, through Twitter, and I looked up what it was about, and I just thought, wow, the connection between self-care and, you know, social justice and oppression is something that totally makes sense, but yet I never really put those two things together. And I'm really excited to have you have the chance to talk to us about that more. But first, can we just start off? Will you tell us more about yourself and your work? Sure, definitely. So I can say a little bit of maybe about how I came to this work and and some of the things that sort of has influenced me up to this point. Um, I was working in the 90s in the domestic violence field. I was uh, working, you know, really on the front lines. I was doing direct service, but I was also, you know, doing grant writing and community work and uh, was busy, stressed out doing that work. Um, It would not be uncommon for me to work all day at the shelter, go in the evening to do a training or go defend a grant at City Hall and then actually take the crisis line overnight. Uh, so that was like the kind of, you know, life I was living and, and all of my colleagues were doing the same. Needless to say, that was pretty unsustainable and, you know, found myself getting really burnt out. I, I really at that time did not have any uh, healthy coping skills to speak of. And uh, so I eventually found my way to some other work But uh, I started meditating eventually, and I started to see the connections between my meditation work and sort of the efficacy of my social work practice. And so I started to get really curious about this connection between like personal change and social change. And so that for me has been kind of a guiding sort of light really for the last 20 plus years in in my work, this connection between, you could even call it personal healing and and community healing. Uh, And then um, as I started, uh, you know, getting into academia and uh, being a professor, I also kind of was getting pretty burnt out on that too. Uh, The the academic path can be one of... um, pretty high stress uh, kind of situation. And so I was burning the candle at both ends with that too. And uh, eventually, once I got tenure, I started to, I was still meditating during this time, but I started to get more serious about yoga and started to do some more deeper healing work of my own, some more personal kinds of work. And Um, And I had this sense that I really wanted to be more integrated between these parts of myself that was into yoga and meditation and healing, and yet this academic self, um, this self, this social work self, this public self, and how could I integrate all of these parts together? And so one day I got brave and I uh, had my students meditate at the beginning of class. And that was sort of the beginning for me of starting to integrate this together. And, you know, the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, they're going to hate this. I'm going to get fired. Uh, this isn't working. And um, but I, I stuck with it. And the students Uh, really love it. They really appreciate, you know, five minutes of quiet time before class. Every single class I teach um, since then, uh, no matter what the topic of the course, no matter what the content, uh, we always meditate the first five minutes of class. So I I, I thought, well, there's anything, if I don't teach them anything else, I can at least teach them how to meditate this semester. Uh, So that was really the kind of the context for, you know, how I started to come into this work. That's awesome. And I'm just thinking about people who are in grad school are typically very driven, achievement oriented. The process of tenure, gaining tenure as a professor is, I think of it, I'm not a professor, but I think of it from what I've observed as being somewhat like a, almost like a long, years long hazing process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It is kind of like a hazing process. And it's really you know, I think of academia as a very kind of 
um, sort of patriarchal environment. And uh, I started teaching this course several years ago. Um, well, it's, it's called Mindfulness Yoga and Social Work Practice. It used to be called um, Women, Yoga and the Body. But um, so it was really like the first time I started to teach yoga in an academic institution, it already felt to me like sort of this disruption of, of that patriarchal space because it's so um, it's so driven. We're so conditioned to ignore the body, um, to ignore our emotions, to ignore anything to do with spirit. Uh, and, you know, it's all very cognitively focused. And so to me, it, it always felt like a a bit of an act of resistance to like invite people into their bodies to breathe and move. And, uh, and, you know, the students just absolutely love it. They're, they're hungry for it. Uh, they need it. Um, they, they don't take the time in their lives to slow down and just be with themselves. Exactly. And I would argue even that as grad students, they almost, I would say they almost, probably feel like they can't slow down and take the time because so many students who are in social work school are working, doing internships where they're not getting paid, juggling their course load, and many people have families. And so it's that feeling of it never stops, you know, you have you never have a break. And then not to mention the emotional toll that the work of trying to help alleviate the suffering of groups of people who've been disenfranchised and witnessing individual family community pain day in and day out and being so earnestly, you know, focused on wanting to make a difference in that. It's, it's intense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's really, there's a lot, there's a structural issue here. I mean, it's a form of structural injustice in the sense that, uh, you know, some of these students are, you know, some of my students are, I work at a public university. Some of them are first generation college and graduate students. Um, They're immigrants, they're students of color. um, They're coming from lower income backgrounds in some cases. uh, And so many of them are working at least half time, if not full time, plus, of course, um, full time courses, plus two days a week, as you said. And, you know, I think it does um, sort of set them. I mean, I think it's an injustice and it does sort of set them up for, um, you know, exhaustion down the road right out of the gates. Uh, So it's 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 really I think part of it is a justice issue. And then there's also just, uh, you know, so much rhetoric about self-care. You know, they're hearing that you're supposed to practice self-care, but we're not really creating the conditions within how graduate programs are structured to be able to you know make that a reality, let alone actually teaching students self-care skills. And so, of course, that's a big reason why I wrote the book is like, let's actually help students to think through why we're not focusing on self-care. What are the structural injustices at work here in terms of not only, you know, the challenges of facing their own oppression and trauma, but, but these structural conditions, you know, not only within academia, but within nonprofits and public agencies where uh, self-care is not part of the culture. Help them to think through some of that stuff and then also to give them actually real skills that focus on them as whole human beings. Um, and so I think, you know, one other point I'll add here is just, and I think you were beginning to allude to that, is just this this dissonance that students feel between, you know, their goals and intentions and values and inclinations as to why they got into social work practice uh, in terms of um, social justice and human dignity and, and caring and healing on the one hand, but then these environments and structural organizational structures, these organizational structures and cultures that they're working in, not only academia, but in the um, where their field placements are, are actually an anathema to some of these <laughs> these inspirations that they originally had. And so they're seeing, you know, the, the commodification of social work. They're seeing 
uh, how um, outcomes and the bottom line um, are driving some of the practices, you know, and they're, they're seeing burnout and cynicism in, in colleagues as well. Not That's not, you know, the only thing they're seeing. They're also, you know, inspired and have great field instructors and that sort of thing, too. But um, there's just this dissonance there. And of course, I see I do a lot of like continuing ed type workshops for people who are in the field as well and do consulting and with with organizations. And, you know, everyone's feeling feeling this dissonance too. And so this this book and my work is really about helping people to be with that dissonance, like cognitively, but also like somatically, emotionally, et cetera. And to, you know, help people to begin to unwind it a little bit. And again, somatically, emotionally, cognitively, but also structurally in terms of the work that needs to be done um, within our like organizational environments to make you know some of this self care um, a reality. Wow! Yeah, I mean, what you just said about being with the dissonance and all the different ways that it shows up really is thought provoking because you know I think about the concept of white fragility and mm-hmm. how you know when people are confronted with the way that their privilege benefits them that hurts other people and how, you know, and they just, they want to say, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. I have the right intentions. And, and it's just like, they, they, some people feel like it's a choice. Do I have to, do I have to accept that I am horrible or do I have to disavow that idea that privilege isn't real, you know? And, it becomes that like extreme and they, they just can't deal with it and they kind of shut down. And then, you know, I think that's how white fragility, that's what drives it, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's a good metaphor. And of course it's, it's quite a literal issue as well in terms of understanding sort of oppression as well. But I think, yeah, we can always do more work around being with ambivalence and confusion and that sort of thing. It's, um, you know, our mind, I have a, one of my meditation teachers says the mind is always trying to figure things out and the body's always trying to get comfortable. And, you know, that, you know, some things we just can't quite figure out and some things we just aren't going to be comfortable. And like, can we just, um, just be with that? Right. Like recognizing the system of white supremacy and oppression that our society was built on. And that's not really comfortable once you realize that. But you can either choose to be part of the solution or, you know, shut down and collapse. And I understand why it feels like sometimes there's so much shame in recognizing privilege that it it just feels too impossible, but even that, you know, is a privilege. And so how do people, what, what do you teach your students and in your book about how to get past that dissonance and become more able to sit with it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great question. And I just want to say one, one more point about what you were saying about sort of the white privilege piece and just the, the, sort of the oppression work and the internalized oppression work that I think all of us need to do. You know, if we're talking about sort of the, you know, white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalistic culture that we're living in, that we're all impacted by, no matter what kind of privileges or or not that we have, everyone is impacted by it. We all have both, you know, uh, we, we all have like subjugated selves and privileged selves. So we're all sort of impacted in, dif- in different ways by these things. And even when we have a lot of privilege that, um, you know, these systems are, are negatively impacting us too. And that, you know, if, if our missions of our work, of our organizations, of social workers uh, is, you know, is, has some kind of social justice mission, then it seems that, you know, our job is that we should be doing this internal work along the way, that we should be creating spaces in our organizations to attend to this, um, to this kind of work, you know, in terms of whether we're talking about creating 
structural and cultural changes within the organization. One of the chapters in the book is called A Healing Justice Organization. And I look to different organizational models, feminist organizational models, contemplative organizational models, sanctuary models, um, as sort of ways to think about what a healing justice organization might look like. So there are structural things to do, cultural things to do. And, you know, and some of those things might be, you know, creating spaces where we can be with um, holistically um, this internalized uh, oppression and reflect on it and talk about it and look at the ways that's impacting uh, the way we work with clients, the way we're treated as workers, what are the like disparities within the agency, uh, those those kinds of things. So, um, so I'm definitely you know a big fan of sort of the, looking at the structural um, conditions in place and how we can change those. But but back to sort of the question of like kind of the how a little bit more about sort of how from a kind of a mind, body, spirit perspective, you know, do we learn to, to sit with this? You know, this is really, you know, really mindfulness is really the, you know, the major guiding principle of my work and, and of this book in particular and with my, my work in the, in the community and, and with students. So, um, you know, I use that. I use this more somatic ways of knowing the somatic awareness piece is, not only obviously extremely fruitful when people are able to be with that and look at the ways internalized oppression um, gets locked in the body and and the ways um, in which um, you know feelings are present and that sort of thing. Um, but the body is also very can be very accessible to to people, you know, in terms of like just simple movement and being with the body in that way. So I'll, I'll leave it at that and see 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 what your next thought is. Well, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about how, you know, using the body to as that access point, how does that show up in the work that you're doing, I guess, maybe on the individual and possibly in a broader way, <laughs> maybe not in the broader way? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm you know, either you know, teaching in the classroom or doing workshops, you know, in the community. And so with, with my work, you know, I'm doing just very simple things like um, chair yoga or other kinds of simple movements, um, you know, working with the breath, um, bringing people back to, you know, just helping people to be with um, the body in various ways. Um, I could give you an example of one activity that I do with folks. And this would be something that I would do after, you know, after maybe we've developed a little trust together as a group and, um, you know, we've people, they've been doing yoga. Like this one class I teach is a three hour class and the first hour of the class we do yoga. And so I would do this activity, you know, more to the middle or the end of the semester when we've, They've, you know, they've really started to develop some healing around yoga. They've really started, and we've been practicing mindfulness in class as well. They've been working on their own home practice. That's a big part of the class is for them to develop a home practice and journal about it. And uh, so we're getting, we're, they've, they've sort of started to attain something. We've got some trust. Um, and so this exercise is called the healing through the dark emotions exercise. And I, I um, get the ideas from Miriam Greenspan's work on healing through the dark emotions. Um, but the idea is just to give them an opportunity to um, learn about where their emotions are in the body. And so we start on, we start on the floor, they're on their mats, um, they have a blank um, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper with a blank body map on it. And, um, and then some like crayons and markers around. And so I start with a guided sort of meditation, just kind of get them, you know, relaxed and into their bodies. And then I bring up a dark emotion. So I bring up a particular emotion, um, fear say, and get them to actually sort of um, connect to an experience of fear and actually to sort of feel that in their body and to, I give them cues around, you know, is it, you know, what is the texture? What is the color? You know, is it still, is it moving? 
Um, and so I let them be with that for a few minutes. Um, and then they get up and they draw on the body map, you know, with the crayons using the textures and, and anything that they, they want to, to, you know, draw that on the body map. And then we go through a range of um, different emotions, grief and despair, etc. And then, you know, they have this body map at, at the end and people and then they share it with each other. And, and people are just really kind of amazed at just this real life that these emotions have, you know, just that uh, how embodied they really are. Uh, and so that's uh, I think it's a really powerful, um, powerful exercise for people. Running a group private practice has been a challenging and rewarding experience, and one thing that has made it so much easier is Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. If you're coming from another EHR, like I did, Therapy Notes makes the transition incredibly easy, importing your demographic data free of charge so you can get going right away. My team has found Therapy Notes very easy to learn, it's intuitive, the customer support is second to none. And that's one of the things that has kept me a Therapy Notes customer for several years now. Anytime I've needed to contact Therapy Notes for help with an issue I couldn't figure out on my own, I've been able to get through to someone and resolve the issue within 15 minutes, 99% of the time. Find out what more than 100,000 mental health professionals already know. Try Therapy Notes for two months absolutely free. Just click on the link in the show notes or enter the promo code chat at therapynotes.com. Hey therapists, this is Laura Reagan. If you listen to this show regularly, you're hearing a lot about trauma and attachment, and you probably know these two underlying concerns are what drive most people to seek therapy regardless of how the symptoms present. The good news is trauma is becoming a buzzword, and that's great because more people are discovering there's a reason they feel the way they do, and now they can name what they need help with, but they need to find therapists who can help them. And that's where you come in. Join Trauma Therapist Network's Therapist Directory now at the founding member price of $33 a month. And you'll receive a beautiful listing that can function as a web page if you don't want to set up your own site or even if you have your own. And you can include links to videos of yourself, blog posts, and you're part of a community. Right now we have quarterly calls for all members. Our first one happened in October and it was lovely. Everyone said they really enjoyed it, but I'm adding more content that will begin to be available March 1st, 2022. And if you sign up for February 1st, you'll be locked in at the founding member price of $33 a month. February 1st, the price is going to go up to $97 a month to reflect the added value of these new offerings. And everybody who signs up as a founding member for $33 a month will get all that content beginning March 1st, as long as you keep your membership. I'm really excited about what's to come. We're going to have weekly live calls, four per month, and one will be a Q&A, one will be focused on self-care, one will be case consultation, and one will be training on a certain topic. Hurry on over to traumatherapistnetwork.com to sign up and become a founding member of this beautiful community of wonderful, passionate, and skilled trauma therapists. We need you. People who have trauma are out there looking for you, and they don't know how to discern that you specialize in trauma. So come on over to the Trauma Therapist Network and get listed. Join our community and this movement, traumatherapistnetwork.com. Wow, that's amazing. And that's such a, I mean, in a way, I haven't been a social worker for that long, but I got my MSW almost eight years ago. And like you, I was working in a sexual assault crisis center. Well, I don't know what stage you were in your career, but it was for me, it was before grad school, before I even finished my bachelor's. And with that 24-7 hotline, on yeah. call, backup, you know, all the time, never ended. You know, when my kids were little, they would, the phone would ring and they go, oh no, do you have the hotline? You know, when they were like yeah. five, <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> but, you know, so I get that, that perspective, you know, it, that's part of my background too. But, but when I graduated, I think my program was pretty heavily CBT 
based and very much evidence-based practice um, based. And there wasn't a lot of space for mind, body, and spirit in our classes. Um, it wasn't talked about at all, but they did have a trauma class or something. Maybe, I think it was, no, it was it? Yeah, it was like a trauma class, but they did yoga all week and it was a one week long class that was in the summer only. But so for you to talk about helping people get connected to where they feel emotion in their bodies is, I think for many therapists and social workers, that's like an advanced clinical skill that you're teaching people right in school that is really a human skill, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that, you know, like you said, we're very disembodied in our culture where we, you know, we're shut off from our bodies. And then the result is, you know, among other things, we're, we're distracted all the time. We're numbing all the time. You know, we have substance abuse problems and eating disorders and a myriad of problems that go along with being disconnected from our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. I mean, I think, you know, students in general are just, you know, they, they don't have time to practice self-awareness. They don't, they don't have those skills. No one ever taught them to how to practice uh, self-awareness. So students come into my class and, you know, have to sit still and be quiet for five minutes and they're just blown away they like didn't even realize that they were just full of anxiety or, you know, that they're like um, obsessing or, or whatever it may be, you know? So just to be able to, you know, to know thyself is, um, is just so critical and it's just very highly, you know, connected to, to their ability to be um, empathetic and to stay in conscious relationship with somebody else, you know, um, when, when we're checking out all the time or, you know, not even aware that we're checking out, um, and out of our bodies, it's really difficult to, um, to really be present with anyone. And it's just, it's kind of phenomenal to me that we're not really teaching those skills at very deep of a level in, um, in academia. It's, it's pretty phenomenal, but, but I did want to touch on too, just, just your point you were making about, you know, the disembodied culture, you know, and sort of how distracted and, you know, there's uh, more and more evidence that um, digital technology is really exacerbating this and playing into this, of course, as well as, you know, heightening anxiety and that sort of thing. And um, Douglas Rushkoff, who's this, um, he he does, uh, he's a kind of a intellectual and scholar around um, digital technology, but he coined this term called digifrenia. And digifrenia is really just this, this idea that, you know, we're, we're disconnected from real analog lived experience that the the online world is this 24/7 always on world that doesn't mesh with the reality of kind of you know the cycles of nature and the realness of a real lived experience and so this disconnect between the always on 24/7 world of of a digital capitalism that's you know trying to get us to click and buy things that uh, that uh, is really in conflict with how our bodies actually work and what our bodies actually need. And so um, I think this is a big, um, you know, big piece of um, what's going on for folks as well, or it's exacerbating all of these things that have been um, been around for a long time. So, um, you know, in that regard, I do um, help students or, or create spaces for students to reflect on their relationships to technology, because I think that's really important. And, and you know, the way I articulate it in the book is, you know, how can we co- cultivate an empowered relationship with technology? You know, I never say no cell phones in the classroom, you know, that I just don't think that that uh, really is a you know, I don't. I just don't think it's an empowering uh, solution um, to to the p- problem. It's like, okay, you're an adult. Let's 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 take this as an opportunity. Let's get curious. Like, let's just notice. Wow, I'm like obsessively looking at my text like every three minutes. Like, isn't isn't this interesting? Like, what is what am I distracting myself from? What's going on here? Um, do I feel empowered in terms of my relationship, or is you know is there you know, is there addiction going on here? So really trying to create a space where people can 
can be in the inquiry. Yeah. There's so many things about the digital culture that we're in now that I'm I'm a parent of two college students and when I look at them and I think about particularly for my daughter how cultural messages about femininity and being a woman and our bodies they're they're pervasive for men but I think I don't know it seems like it's more subjugating in some way for women that you know I mean we know that media tends to reinforce patriarchal norms and in all ways not just in um, gender but of course racism and you know all the areas of inequality and but I just I guess you know what I was going to say is that to me I just think how much harder growing up as a teenager and a young adult, which was so hard for me, but how much harder exponentially so it would have been if I were carrying something around with me that was always giving me messages about, you know, in a way, my worthiness as a human. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm really framing mindfulness, um, you know, mindful awareness, somatic awareness, coming back to the body, coming back to to the moment as an act of resistance. So it's an act of resistance in the sense of an act of resistance to, you know, the capitalist algorithms that are um, preying on us in our Facebook feeds and whatnot. It's so, 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 you know, turning that off and um, coming back to, you know, going out, out for a walk in the woods or, you know, wherever, wherever it is, you know, connecting to a pet, connecting to a loved one, whatever it is, um, you know, that that is actually an act of resistance um, in that sense. And, you know, that also just mindfulness in general, and again, somatic awareness is an act of resistance to, as you say, sort of the patriarchal objectification of the body, um, particularly, you know, if you're part of a community that has been targeted in terms of your body's objectified, or that if your um, body has been um, seen as less than, or it's been targeted um, for violence, you know, or abuse, um, whether you're a person of color, whether you're a trans person, you know, if your body has, if you've been told that your body um, doesn't look right, or it's not enough, or it's, you know, actually been a target of physical harm, then the idea of like coming back to your body, to loving your body, to having compassion for your body, to develop a loving relationship with your body, that that to me, um, you know, not only is that an intrinsically good thing to do, but, you know, for the socially um, social justice minded, um, you can, you know, also view it as an actual actually an act of um, resistance. And so I'm, I'm reminded of the Audre Lorde quote that says uh, self-care is not um, self-indulgence. Um, it, it's an act of political political warfare or something like that. So um, that's, I, I think, a little bit where I'm coming from with this idea of um, of healing justice. Yeah. Well, you know, and I mean, I think what's coming to mind for me as we talk about this is that the more you are present and if you are aware and not in a trance, you see what's really going on and you're like, oh, this is this isn't OK. This can't be. I can't just ignore this. Whereas if you're just sort of going along, floating, not really aware of what's happening, ignoring your own discomfort. Maybe because, you know, I can imagine like when with children who don't know to shut off their bodies because they haven't been conditioned to that yet. Um, and they ask questions then about, well, why is that man living? Why is he sleeping on the street? And the parents are like, oh, just come on, don't look at him. You know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you can't ignore those things if you're really present. Right. All of the injustice. Exactly. And it starts with being present in your own body. Like I think there, there's definitely a connection between our ability to be empathetic with what's happening in other people's, you know, this is mirror neurons, right? What, right. With what's happening with in other people's bodies um, in relation, like correlated with 
your capacity to be connected to what's um, happening in our own bodies. And of course, we're all conditioned to look outside of ourselves. Um, you know, we look side of, outside of ourselves, um, you know, to seek out pleasure, to avoid, um, you know, pain. We're looking to get stimulated in different ways. And this is, you know, in part just how the brain is is conditioned. But um, I think our culture definitely, you know, encourages us to seek um, satisfaction outside of ourselves. Uh, and so that adds to our lack of ability to, to be with the body. And so, you know, and I think social workers in particular, therapists, counselors, activists, people who are drawn to sort of the helping professions, you know, may tend to be people who are, you know, looking to help others, looking externally and maybe not so tuned into, you know, their, their own needs as much. So, um, you know, the, the practices, you know, are helpful for everybody, but that's why, you know, I think it's especially um, useful for, for helpers. Yeah. And one of the things you talk about, um, well, I just want to add to that. I know you cover this very well in your book, but it's, you know, helping professionals in a very broad sense because activists and um, advocates and people who may be volunteers, but are out there just really trying to make change, struggling against so much resistance from the systems of oppression that are in place. The toll is enormous on physical and mental health. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, the secondary, I mean, yeah, the secondary trauma and um, all of that, that's that kind of stress as well, not to mention, you know, um, low wage, uh, you know, overwork, uh, all of that kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, for people who are um, protesting against inequality, just because inequality is wrong, and you know, they may have a part-time job or, you know, a full-time job that's really low paying. I mean, the social work field is not a high paid profession, but um, compared to like a minimum wage job, it's better. And, you know, so just, I think the less personal resources someone has for their own, um, you know, food, shelter, basic needs, medical care, the more of a toll that this type of work can take. And so I think this book is really important and really, really beautiful because one thing about meditation, it's free and nobody can take it away from you. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think that's, that's, I mean, you know, all the workshops I teach, you know, every time I'm with a group of people teaching them meditation, you know, that's, that's a big takeaway for people is just how empowering it is. Like I did this, you know, I didn't have to pop a pill. I didn't have to, um, you know, I did a little chair yoga, so I didn't have to guzzle caffeine to get a little more energy, got a little more energy flowing in my body all on my own. Um, and so, yeah, the, just the, the empowering aspect um, of it, I think, is, is um, an important sell for people. Yeah, you can do it anywhere, anytime. You don't have yeah. to ask someone else for permission. Yeah. And I think I, another important message of the book is, you know, is also just sort of now, I have a whole chapter just on the natural world, on the natural environment. Um, and so, you know, it's not just, you know, a solo effort healing justice, right? It's something, well, I have another whole chapter on just like community. So like healing in the context of community and like, um, you know, interpersonal and other kinds of community-based connections, conscious communication and all of that um, sort of thing as, you know, sort of our supportive networks that we have to sort of help us stay resourced. So that's like, I think equally as important. Um, and, and then as I mentioned, the, the natural world as well, you know, our environments, our work environments are so disconnected from the natural world, you know, um, like 50% of all workers in the U.S. don't have access to natural light um, in their workplaces, right? And we know not having natural light is more is associated with like better kinds of work outcomes, um, happier, healthier, more productive workers. Um, I was in a workplace recently where the um, 
the head of the unit would not allow any plants in the workplace. And I, I can't remember what the reasoning was exactly, but, um, you know, it, it just, you know, it was, it just, it was a very sterile kind of environment. And, and again, sort of, um, I, I bring in some of the research on biophilia, you know, just this idea that having more of a connection to the natural world in the built environment can, you know, bring forth um, lots of more positive outcomes um, in ourselves as workers. And so having sort of natural elements um, in our environment. And there are things you can do. There are fixes that can be done that can, you know, enhance that uh, a little bit. You know, I understand that many of us, you know, are working in these, you know, uh, concrete <laughs> kind of buildings that don't, you know, that, that aren't like biophilically designed or anything like that. But um, so, you know, connection to the natural world is another way to an important way uh, to resource ourselves. And it's part of this larger vision around like transformative justice and transformative change, you know, if that the work is also um, in terms of our healing, this, this larger agenda around transformative justice that, um, you know, we have to we're, we're part of the planet, the planet's part of us, and we, and that's part of the healing work as well. And, and I think that's, I think people are very unaware of just how disconnected they are to sort of the natural rhythms of nature, whether it's the circadian rhythms of being able, of like sleeping um, and eating at appropriate times, you know, going to bed when it's, when it gets dark and getting up when the sun rises um, being in more, um, you know, eating more local foods, all of that kinds of stuff can just bring us in greater alignment with the natural world. And so just helping folks to go through inquiries around, um, you know, their relationship to the natural world, um, in, in my mind, is, is, you know, just as helpful as some of these other practices, too. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think a good way to wrap up our discussion if you don't mind, I think it would be helpful if you could sort of talk about the way the book is laid out. You've you sort of alluded to some of the parts, but well, not alluded to, you've talked about some of the parts, but the the framework of the book is really cool. And I think I think many people who are listening are going to be very interested in it. So I'd love if you would sort of tell how it's laid out. Yeah, definitely. Um, so it's the book is three parts. Um, the first part is sort of introducing the context and the research and sort of my framework and approach. And I can say more about that. And then the second part um, is I have a chapter on each of kind of the parts of the spell self, the body, the spirit, et cetera, um, and, and specific inquiries and then specific practices um, to attend to those parts of the self. And then the last part of the book is really about um like bringing it to the front lines, you know, bringing the um, healing work that you've been doing on yourself to the front lines um, in the organization, um, in on the, you know, doing indirect practice and even in the larger kind of global context as well. So that like the first first chapter focuses on um, oppression and trauma and, and introducing healing justice and the need for it. And then the second chapter, I get into stress and talking about um, sort of self-care and kind of the self-care re revolution and, and stress reduction and that sort of thing. Um, but also like making a unique point about how the healing justice framework is a little bit different, you know, just in the sense that it's not just this kind of selfish um, kind of narcissistic uh, kind of endeavor that we're up to that that our aspirations are a little bit bigger. Um, and then chapter three, I bring in the whole self, like just bringing in like, what are these um, dimensions of the whole self drawing on some of the um, East West ideas um, that have guided my work, um, as well as sort of more like ecological systems um, type approaches. Um, and then I bring forth in chapter four, some of the actual skills begin to introduce um, the framework for the skills that are going to be offered um, in the book, which include mindfulness and compassion, curiosity and critical inquiry, and effort and equanimity. And really, these come directly out of Buddhist and, and yogic teachings. Um, and then as we get into part two, again, there's a chapter on the body, there's a chapter that was chapter five. Chapter six is um, 
connecting to the mind heart. Seven is the spirit. Eight is community. Um, and then nine is cultivating connection between person and planet. And, and each of these um, sections have lots of um, offerings around actual skills, actual practices, actual inquiries. Each chapter has a little section called experiment for a day where you could practice, you know, just try something and explore. And then, as I said, this final part of the book is um, focuses on the healing justice organization, looking at organizational models and organizational change issues, and then really talking about the front lines, um, connecting with ideas around boundaries and um, um, ways to care for the self as you're um, involved in um, practice when you're in the moment. Um, And then finally, um, this piece around sort of connecting more globally, doing more of the anti-oppression work, connecting with difference, um, which I think is a lot of um, the work that we have in front of us as a planet and as a global community in terms of our cultivating our capability to to be with difference uh, in a genuine way. Oh, man. That's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, really, gosh. It's a labor of love. That's for sure. That's for sure. It really is like all of my life's work for the last uh, 20 plus years. And so it's, uh, it really is a labor of love. Well, if you ever wonder if you have made a meaningful contribution to the world, I can tell you, yes, you have. Thank you. I appreciate (laughs) that. And I think, um, you know, this book is really inspiring. And, you know, for us all to know that we, we can and do make a difference. But what is it? You know, what is that difference that you want to make? Is it positive overall? Or is it? Not so much. And I think with these concepts, we all can be making a difference and making a better world. And, you know, that's needed right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it is really that Gandhi quote of be, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, you know, and, you know, if, if our organizations, if, if the way we practice is just perpetuating the status quo, then, you know, you can kind of wonder what the point is, you know. Um, so it's really, it's an opportunity to, to really tune into process and to really um, reflect on how you want to be in the world. I love it. Well, where can people find your wonderful book, Healing Justice? Oh, yeah. Um, so you can definitely go to my website, which is lorettapiles.com, and there's a book page on there, so you can learn more about it, like all the chapter breakdowns and a little more explanation about it. There's also a, a place to click, I think, that takes you to the Amazon site. Um, it comes out March 14th. Um, also, you can go to the Oxford University Press page. And I do have a special code for your listeners um, that will give them 30% off if they go go to the Oxford University Press page. Nice. Uh, Yeah. So if they go to OUP.com and um, I think it's OUP.com slash academic um, and then find my book, Healing Justice by Loretta Piles, I can give you the code. The code is A as in Apple, S as in Sam, F as in fly, L as in Loretta, Y as in yes, Q as in question, six. So A-S-F-L-Y-Q-6. And that'll give folks 30% off uh, the book, which is quite a great deal. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. As Y Q six. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't, I, like, I wish it would have been a cute, clever kind of thing, but it's not. Oh, well. I'll yeah. put a <laughs> I'll put a link to that site in the show notes and link directly to the page that the book's on so that people can find it and get their 30% off. Thank you for that. You bet. Well, I really, really appreciate you coming on to Therapy Chat today. I, I loved this conversation. I love your book, the work you're doing, and I want to tell the world about it. So hopefully a lot of people will go out there and read your book and learn from you. Well, I appreciate it for the, uh, uh, I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate what you're doing uh, with the podcast, Laura. So, so thanks for reaching out. Yeah. Thank you. 
Thank you to Therapy Notes for sponsoring this week's episode. I do love Therapy Notes. It's such an asset to my business and makes my job as a practice owner and a therapist much easier. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today.